0: This is Dominic Preziosi, editor of Commonweal. Readers of the magazine might remember our special issue, The American Parish Today, which was published back in the spring of 2020. It featured a number of articles that had analyzed the complexities and contradictions of Catholic life and suggested that the future of these communities lies in embracing much greater cultural and geographic fluidity. On this episode, we speak with Susan Bigelow Reynolds. She's a professor of Catholic studies at Emory's Candler School of Theology, and she wrote the lead article for that special issue, entitled Waystations for Pilgrim Church. She joins us to discuss her new book, People Get Ready, an ethnographic and theological study of a single parish located in Boston's Roxbury neighborhood. That's coming right up on the Commonweal Podcast. So I'm here with Commonweal Associate Editor and the podcast producer, Griffin Olenek. Hi, Griffin. Uh, good to see you here today.
1: Well, oh, Good to be here.
0: So I'm glad you got to speak with our good friend, Susan Bigelow Reynolds. Why don't you tell us a little bit about your conversation?
1: Sure. So as you mentioned at the top of the episode, Susan wrote the lead article to our parish issue. And in many ways, she was really the intellectual guide for us over the many months it took us to report, write, and edit those articles. Her new book is a much richer, more robust account of some of those ideas about Catholic parishes being way stations or borderlands, permanent stable communities that are paradoxically also on the way somewhere else. My hope is that this book will be widely read. Susan's such a clear, engaging writer, and as you'll hear, she's a great conversationalist. She also offers a somewhat radical critique of one of the central pillars of the Second Vatican Council, this notion of communion as the end-all, be-all of Catholic life. Communion's too easy a concept, Susan argues. It tends to deny difference rather than deal with reality. In its place, she suggests another concept, solidarity, which until now is something that the church has tried to do outside its walls with the world. Susan says that we need to implement it within local communities, too.
0: Well, thanks, Griffin. And I'm really glad you got to talk with Susan. This sounds like a good conversation. So why don't we take a listen? Sounds good. Welcome to the Commonwealth Podcast.
2: It's wonderful to be here. Thank you.
1: So to start, I thought I'd ask you to introduce St. Mary of the Angels Parish in the Eggleston Square section of Boston's Roxbury neighborhood. First, could you tell us what were you doing there? What was the community like and how typical is St. Mary's of American parishes?
2: So I'll talk first about how I came to St. Mary's and then I'll talk about the parish itself. So my encounter with the St. Mary of the Angels community began in the late summer of 2011, as I was preparing to move to Boston to begin my master's in theological studies at Boston College, I was the very picture of a poor grad student. And I was moving up there from the Rio Grande Valley, and I was trying to figure out like where I was going to live in this new and extremely expensive city. And also, at the same time, I was trying to figure out how I wanted to approach my theological studies. i Pursued theological education after living on the US Mexico border in Brownsville, Texas, because I wanted to think more about the dynamics of religious practice and community and migration. I wanted to keep both feet in the world. And I was forwarded an email from a friend in the School of Social Work that was sort of advertising this opening for a resident at this Catholic parish in Roxbury. In exchange for 13 hours of work a week, this student, grad student, would receive free rent, which sounded Ooh. great to me. <laughs> there wasn't, a, like so many Boston parishes, there wasn't a priest in residence at the parish. So the community relied, had been relying for a long time on lay people to do the tasks of housekeeping and welcome and presents and things like that. And not being from Boston or familiar with Boston at all at the time, I didn't know anything about Roxbury which in a way was really a gift because had I been from the city, being a white person, it's very likely that I would have imbibed a lot of prejudices about the area. For much of the latter half of the 20th century, Roxbury really signified kind of the consummate inner city, not only like in the news media and civically, but also within the church. In archdiocesan documents, there's ample fear about the problem of Roxbury, right? To talk about Roxbury was to talk about every possible social ill and poverty and blight and racial upheaval. It was also, of course, ground zero for civil rights action in in Boston. But at the time in 2011, right, I knew none of this. (laughs) And that was a gift in a lot of ways because it meant that I learned about Roxbury through relationships, especially relationships with the folks at St. Mary of the Angels Parish. So we'll talk about St. Mary's. St. Mary's is a small and poor and profoundly spirit-filled Catholic parish in this little neighborhood called Eggleston Square, which is right across the corner from Franklin Park in Boston. It's important to visualize the space of the parish. It was built in 1906 during this like spate of parish building. You know, the Irish immigrants and German immigrants and Italian immigrants. And they were like, ah, it's a Catholic future for Boston. So we're going to build a million parishes. But the money was never raised to finish the parish. So to this day, it's a basement with a roof and the sanctuary is in the basement. And then next door There's this big three-story, like 19th century Victorian kind of a state house that was bequeathed to the archdiocese for a dollar. And that's the parish house. So the rectory, but also all of the parish's meeting space is there. So it's one of the smallest parishes in the archdiocese. It always has been. And it's also profoundly diverse, racially diverse, culturally diverse, economically diverse. It was never a national parish. So from its very inception, it was this mix of Irish and German and Italian immigrants. And later it was Puerto Rican, African-American, Dominican, Haitian, and Laotian. By the 1980s, the parish was sustaining this community of more than 40 nations, which is incredible in a parish that was always really small. In certain ways, right, you asked about how St. Mary's is similar to and maybe different from your typical U.S. parish today. In certain ways, St. Mary's represented this unlikely vanguard for a lot of the trends that characterize U.S. parishes today. It's had a Spanish mass since 1971. It's profoundly culturally diverse because a lot of priests refused assignments to the inner city and because inner city parishes were systemically under-resourced. There's been this really robust tradition of lay leadership by necessity, which is something that we're seeing today. Catholics were really a minority in Eggleston Square for much of its history. So there was always this reality of religious pluralism and the need to be sort of a good neighbor ecumenically and interreligiously, which, again, we're seeing today. In a lot of ways, St. Mary's is just like the poor church for the poor that we hear Pope Francis talking about so much today. But in a lot of other ways, and I think in really some crucial ways that have a lot to teach us, St. Mary's is also really unique. It's welcoming in a way that I had never experienced before or since. And I think most importantly, while a lot of parishes today, a growing number of parishes, are diverse in the sense of, say, having an English-speaking and a Spanish-speaking sub-community, I've never encountered another parish in which people are united across these boundary lines of race and culture and language and socioeconomic status. Not just as like members of a common institution, but as friends, right? As, as like deep friends, especially in a city as historically segregated as Boston. And this is what stunned me. Frankly, it enchanted me. So the book grew out of my desire to really understand the roots of this hard-won solidarity. Well, the book is quite
1: enchanting, as you say, and it's got a good mix of kind of straight up academic theological analysis mixed in with first person narration of the time that you spent there. And you give such rich physical descriptions of the church space. I think you at one point you called it an underground church, which is mm-hmm. Figuratively, but also literally true as it's a basement with a roof over it, as you say. But I was wondering if we could start to get into some of the more theoretical parts of your analysis. You start talking about the legacy of the Second Vatican Council and you write very movingly about it, talking about its aspirations, especially towards community and especially towards a church that's more engaged with the world. But as the Second Vatican Council's promises were not fully realized, many of those dreams have gone unfulfilled and sexism, racism, classism and clericalism continue to persist. I'm wondering if you could explain what you mean about this overemphasis on the communion paradigm and what might the alternative look like?
2: Sure, that's a great question. So I think for centuries, and I think we all, whether or not you're a scholar of American Catholic history or just sort of a a, participant, observer, maybe with a family history, right? We all see how for centuries now, American Catholics, both on the ground and also leaders, clerical leaders, bishops have been searching for language to describe the situation of cultural pluralism in that's been a really unique feature of the American church, right? You have this melting pot language and that transitions to this rhetoric about multiculturalism, since the mid 1980s, and there are ecclesiastical reasons for that dating, the language of communion has gained prominence as the both the theological language and also the pastoral language that we give to this hoped-for unity in diversity within the church, both the universal church, the idea of being this global diversity of local churches yet united, right as one universal church. And also at the local level, at the diocese, even at the parish, the idea that, OK, we are many cultures, we are many peoples, but we are all one in Christ. And increasingly, this is the language that, for example, the U.S. bishops use to talk about diversity in parishes, in particular, this idea of communion, of unity and diversity, which on the surface sounds great, right? It does Who sound nice. Love, yeah. Right? Who doesn't love unity and diversity? Unfortunately, and I get into this in the book, the way that communion has been elaborated, both magisterially and also theologically, has really militated against this construction of a more just and equitable church. For one thing, often in this communion literature, there's this real overemphasis on the sacraments and especially the sacraments of baptism and Eucharist, almost as efficacious social equalizers. There's almost this sense that, well, we're all baptized into the same church. We're all one in Christ. We all eat of the same host and drink of the same cup. And therefore, right, therefore, what could divide us? But of course, in reality, we know that a lot of things divide us. And what then can we say? It's almost as though we lose the ability to say anything more critical about the actual divisions that exist in the church for fear of discounting the power of the Eucharist. But I I would argue that we're really seeing the Eucharist incorrectly in some way. We're, We're forcing upon it this sort of agentic political power that it doesn't possess. The second problem, I think, with this language of communion is that both to its credit and its detriment, it really emphasizes the power of local belonging, and there, that's, that can be good, right? Especially in the post-Vatican II church in which we're striving slowly six years hence to realize this vision of a world church, a global church, right? There has to be a sense that the local is deeply sacred, is sacramental, right? And not just the local in Boston, right? The local in Uganda, the local in India, that we're all sort of equally constitutive of the body of Christ. Unfortunately, too, especially within the theological literature, there's this very romanticized understanding of the local, right? So in a place like Boston, where redlining has really affected the ways that people have organized themselves into communities, the Eggleston Square community that I write about was a redlined district, and that has had lasting effects on the ways that people have been able to build lives for themselves in that area of the city. We need to be able to contend with the evils of local belonging as well as the good things. And finally, overall, I I critique in the book this persistent use of the language of diversity in the church while at the same time, I think we're confronted with this real suspicion of actual difference, right? Diversity has this very positive valence, right? We're different, but we're unified. When you start talking about difference, right? Real human difference, linguistic difference, racial difference, cultural difference, right? All of a sudden you have this feeling of, oh, this is bad. This is disruptive, right? It it leads to what I call ecclesial colorblindness, which kind of posits the suspension of racial difference as, as a precondition for ecclesial unity the book itself is an argument for a, a reclamation of the vatican II language of solidarity as an ecclesial virtue in in the documents of vatican II, there's a lot of use of the language of solidarity in gaudium et spes for example the idea of solidarity with the world that the church is called to be in solidarity with the world which is a radical contribution of vatican II. it should be said But I think there's just as much to say about what solidarity means for the church at intra, right, within itself. And it surprises me and it continues to surprise me that we've spent so much time looking for language to help us navigate all of these borderlines within our parishes, within the church. And really very rarely do we appeal to the language of solidarity, which really implies like this effort, this practice of construction of common life across differences that don't go away. That's language that's really been neglected, I think, within the ecclesiological tradition, and it's language I'd like to reclaim. Hmm.
1: Well, I want to go back to a word you just used, which is the idea of a border, which is an important concept for you in your analysis. And many of our listeners are probably familiar with the idea of a shared parish in which Different ethnic and linguistic groups share common facilities, use the same worship space, but for all intents and purposes are separate and distinct communities. But St. Mary's, as you write, and I'm quoting you here, is more like a borderland, a place formed by the confluence of peoples and cultures. I'm wondering, could you tell us about the theological concept of the borderland and what role does it play in your own thinking about the Catholic Church today?
2: Sure. My thinking about this notion of the borderland has been really shaped by U.S. Latinx theologians, especially folks like Roberto Goizueta, who really sort of placed this language into the theological lexicon, seeing the borderland as this space, not only of connection, but of real encounter and transformation, but also a place of violence, of woundedness, right, of power negotiations. When you encounter a border space, the two sides don't they don't dissolve into one another right again which i think a lot of times when we use this language of communion or unity and diversity there's this imagination that at some point we're going to achieve this like post like post-racial sort of sameness in which we're all just together and somehow we don't have a good way of imagining unity apart from uniformity our end goal isn't just to be the same Right. We can. <laughs> communion is, it implies that the maintenance of difference. Right. Or else there's no relationship there. You can't be in a relationship with something that's exactly, you know, identical to yourself. So seeing a place like St. Mary of the Angels as this kind of borderland where you have particular cultural communities that maintain themselves and are very robust and within which relationships are very strong. These are spaces of real cultural solidarity and refuge. And then also at the same time, right, there's this third space. There's this middle space where different kinds of relationships develop through different kinds of encounters. But that middle space is a real space also, right? It's not imagined, right? So you have these distinctive cultural communities And you also have this third space of intercultural community within which there's a tremendous amount of social power. And that's what I get into in some of the chapters of the book is that in this sort of middle space of coming together, the community at St. Mary's has discovered this really distinctive form of spiritual and also social and political power let's talk
1: about one of the structures in which that kind of third space is negotiated, which is the parish council, which was a structure that was anticipated by the documents of the Second Vatican Council. I was surprised reading your book that you focus less on liturgy and maybe more on these kinds of other spaces that we don't think of being as spiritual or religious. Could you say a bit more about that, how, how the parish council functioned for cultivation of solidarity at St. Mary's?
2: That's a great question. This was one of the biggest surprises of my research. I imagined that I would be focusing a lot on intercultural liturgy, just because when I, in my mind, associated like religious practice, parish based practice, my mind went to Mass, right? Of course, that's what we all associate with. Like, that's ritual par excellence in the parish is the Mass. But the more I got into it, right, the more I realized that parishes are spaces of so many different forms of ritual, and each one of them deserves a really close look. And one of those spaces for me was the parish pastoral council, which from the moment that I arrived at St. Mary's for the first time, it was clear to me that the parish council played this really outsized role in the parish in in ways that I'd not experienced before and have not experienced since. I became part of the parish council because I was living in the parish house. What was fascinating was that this was clearly a space of really intense lay communication across a lot of different forms of difference and in a really intense space of lay leadership. This all started in the late 1960s and i discovered this in the archdiocesan archives what i found in the parish files of st mary of the angels in the archives was that st mary's was really one of the first parishes in the archdiocese to essentially sort of experiment with this model of the parish pastoral council it seems like it probably started around 1969 right in the wake of the council The Archdiocese had released some guideline booklets for parish pastoral councils, right? This was really a new model. And of course, parish pastoral councils are technically advisory, right? They're not a board of directors, but at St. Mary's, which was at that point a parish without any stable pastoral leadership, a parish that like so many parishes in the inner city in Roxbury had been systemically neglected, was a site in which the laity could come together and really take up the mantle of leading the parish in ways that felt like they had a place within the broader ecclesial structure so this they formed this parish council interracial parish council and somewhere around 1969 um, there was about a dozen laity on it and also the priests who were assigned to the parish and the first thing that they did was vote to move the parish's bank account to Boston's first black owned bank as a gesture of solidarity with their community. And this was a costly move because the bank charged higher fees and St. Mary's had practically no money to its name to begin with. So even though the fees were small, they were still significant. But it also raised suspicions with the archdiocese because here you had this request to move the funds coming from not the pastor, but the parish council of which the pastor was part. So it brought them under the suspicious eye of the archdiocese.
0: We'll have more of Griffin's conversation with Susan Bigelow-Reynolds in a minute.
2: I'm Ellen Konick, Executive Director of Commonweal. With our centennial just around the corner in 2024, now is a great time to consider making a one-time donation or joining our associates program. Thank you very much for your support. It helps make everything we do at Commonweal, our publications, our programming, and this podcast possible.
1: Well, I want to go to another issue that you raised, which is that of ritual. And there's a way in which we think of ritual as a kind of homogenizing source of identity and meaning where we think, well, this is what we do. This is how we celebrate. This is what demonstrates our oneness. But in your book, you write that liturgy, quote, speaks with a fractured voice. What do you mean? And how did this play out in some of the rituals that you witnessed and participated in at St. Mary's?
2: the ritual life of St. Mary showed me is that the outcome of liturgy, let's say, or ritual more broadly, isn't like this uh, sort of philosophical uniformity, right? I think we have this idea that we all take the mass, for example, right? We celebrate together. We all recite the creed. We all exchange a sign of peace. We come as many, but we leave as one. (laughs) But in fact, if you were to ask 50 people who are coming out of Mass, what's that about? What does the Eucharist mean to you? You would get 50 different answers. Right? And that's not because some people believe correctly and other people believe incorrectly, or we have like deep seated pedagogical problems within the church, right? It's because when we participate in any ritual, whether it's like a ritual of a football game or some sort of civic ritual, the 4th of July, or whether it's an ordinary Sunday Mass, right? Or all bringing our life experiences, our hopes, our dreams, our fears, our perceptions, our understandings. And we're bringing those to the ritual and we're negotiating them within the ritual and we're leaving with those perceptions as well. And so so one way that this played out that I saw really acutely was in the community's Good Friday way of the cross. So beginning in somewhere around the late 1970s or early 1980s, The St. Mary of the Angels community has taken to the streets of Roxbury every Good Friday to perform a way of the cross based on the community's own passion that year. So the different stations will be represented by different places within the community where hope or violence or despair or longing or solidarity have been symbolized throughout that past year. When I was there, there were stops on corners where drive-by shootings had taken place. There were stops in front of homes where, you know, matriarchs of the community had lived for decades, people who were the proverbial Veronicas wiping the face of the community. It's a really powerful ritual. I looked particularly at this ritual. And as part of that project, I did a bunch of interviews with people who were organizers of it. People who were longtime community members, both within the parish and the broader community, and also just people who came to walk in it. There were those that were there because they walked to the Stations of the Cross with their parents back in, in Colombia or the Dominican Republic. And this was an act of memory for them connecting with their homelands. There were folks there who were there out of kind of protest, right? It was a social justice action, a kind of a protest against the violence of the streets, which is actually which is how it had started and everything in between. And I think the beauty of ritual and I think the beauty, honestly, of Catholicism and the practice of the Catholic faith is that it's highly ritualized. And a lot of times we think of ritual as like almost pejoratively, like it's just ritual just going through the motions. Right. But there's there's a beauty in the going through of the motions, because if you think about it, there's very few spaces in everyday life where we can act together with A lot of different people, right? Especially people whose language we don't speak. People whose, you know, whose social reality we don't share. And it's not as though ritual solves things, right? Again, we don't come out of ritual like united magically. But there is something really powerful about the ability that ritual gives us to move together, to walk together, to act together. There's a really deep power in that. And it was something that I think was really central to the experience of community and solidarity that I found at St. Mary's.
1: It occurred to me as I was reading your book that Greek etymology of liturgy, right, has this notion of work together or public Mm -hmm. work. And there's this real way in which you valorize the idea of working together, not as working together to paper over difference, but Mm -hmm. working in and through and for difference And that happens in the context of cities. It strikes me that this is very much a kind of urban theology almost Mm. that you develop. And I'm wondering if you could say more about U.S. Catholicism today and what cities might have to offer.
2: I think the question of the city is a really important one for theology, especially because, as I note in the book. Right. So many of the resources and the attention and the population shifts have followed Catholics to the suburbs. So in a place like Boston, for example, there was a huge amount of divestment in city parishes because white Catholics were moving to the suburbs. Right. We have this idea that everyone was moving to the sub- Everyone was not moving to the suburbs. Right. But white right. Catholics. Right. Folks with their resources were moving to the suburbs. And the attention followed them there. But reclaiming the power of the city create space for difference. Again, without uniformity is really, I think is really powerful. And it's also important, I think, too, in the present, like in 2023, to make sure that we're clear about who we think we're talking about when we talk about cities and suburbs. So I think for a long time, Right. The notion of the suburb, depending on kind of what you're where you stood, suburbs had a pejorative sense, right? We moved out to the suburbs. But if you look at suburbs now, and I live in Atlanta, for example, and Atlanta is a really good example. If you look at the suburbs, that's actually where new immigrant communities are settling. They're not settling in the city because the city is too expensive, right? I don't live in the city, I don't live ITP, right? In the perimeter as we say in Atlanta, because I was priced out of the city. I live just OTP, outside the perimeter. (laughs) It's a thing (laughs) because that was affordable for me. And my neighbors are from Bangladesh and India. My neighbors are Hindu and Jewish and Jehovah's Witness. My neighbors are Black and white and Latino This is where the diversity is in the city, right, broadly speaking. And so today, especially in places like Boston, and places like Atlanta, to talk about the suburbs isn't to talk about the suburbs in the 1950s or 60s, right? The suburbs are in many ways the sites of this kind of new diversification of religious practice. And in some ways, the tide has shifted. So if you go to a parish in the city, right? A lot of times you're going to find a community that is more racially homogenous than you find outside the city because it's folks that are commuting in and they're drawn by a certain liturgical aesthetic and ideology. But it's ironically in those suburban parishes today where you find these sort of new and unexpected ways of being a community. But I think, and in some way that's also urban, right? It's a new kind of urban religion, but I think that's That, for me, is like the unexplored frontier of urban religion today.
1: Well, I think the word that Pope Francis might use for the kind of spaces you're describing is the idea of the periphery and the church that exists on the periphery. But I'm wondering if you could respond to the question of what might St. Mary's and your experience at St. Mary's, the specificity of that place and the way that Work is conducted there, both liturgical work, social work, the work of community building. What might that have to say or contribute to the synod on synodality?
2: I think often for really obvious reasons, when we, hear a, when we hear the word periphery, we think of folks who are really excluded from discourse, right? Of course, I mean, that's what the term implies. But what I found at St. Mary's is that there's also a lot of freedom on the periphery right? There's a lot of freedom when you're working on the edges of an institution. And in many ways, the folks at St. Mary's were very much working on the edges, both of civic and municipal and political institutions, right? They were in the heart of the city, but they were on the edges of political power, but they were also really on the peripheries of the church. But there's an incredible amount of creative freedom when you're on the edges, And what I saw and what I learned from the community at St. Mary's is that there's a lot of power in that creativity. When I read the synodal document, the recent synthesis document for the first phase of the synod, I was really, I was very moved in ways that I didn't really expect myself to be. I don't, I guess I don't know what I was expecting, but this sort of polyphony of voices that that document managed to pull together and offer back to the church was something that I found very beautiful and unexpected because what you found there was not unison, right? There was not agreement, which I think would have been very like suspicion raising, but all of these different voices and perspectives and opinions existing together and in some way through the act of being placed in that same conversation, also like listening to one another too. It was this remarkable opportunity to listen to all of these voices whose perspectives that I personally hadn't necessarily considered previously. And so when I think about the synod, right, and this call to journey together, in the beginning of the synod, I have to say, I wasn't, I didn't have a good handle on what the synod on synodality was when it was first announced. I've come to really adore that definition of synodality because it honestly, it makes me think of a place like St. Mary of the Angels, where you had in some way the global church in a microcosm all together in one place, figuring out over this like century long history of this parish, always figuring out like, how do we live together? How do we journey together And the thing about St. Mary's that I think is also really instructive for the universal church or for the church in the U.S. is that in some way it was like this way station, right, which is something that I talk about when I call it a borderland. Some folks had been there for 40 or 50 years and other folks had been there for a few months and some were Students and some were migrants and some were refugees and some were homeless. And it was, you weren't necessarily going to be there forever, which is true of any parish, right? This is the place where I'm sojourning at the moment, this idea of a pilgrim church, right? But we're all, we're on our way and we're accompanying one another on the way. And how then do we see our task in that, that really kind of like dynamic way? Right. I think a lot of times when I think about work that I've done at the parish level, just as a parishioner, you're always frustrated with this dynamic between wanting to build something that lasts or something that works or something that's great, but also recognizing that everybody's like on their way. Oh, so-and-so is going to do this, but they moved away. To do that, but they had a baby and now they can't come. Right. So it's this like really fluid community, all trying to like build static things. And what if we just had more peace with the fact that we're all just on our way and what we're really doing is accompanying one another and like bearing with one another on the way.
1: Susan, this was such a wonderful conversation. Thanks for being here on the Commonwealth podcast.
2: It was really a joy. Thank you for inviting me.
0: Susan Bigelow-Reynolds' new book is People Get Ready, Ritual, Solidarity, and Lived Ecclesiology in Catholic Roxbury. And it's available now from Fordham University Press. You can find... Susan's many Commonweal articles on our website. I'm Dominic Preziosi, and this is the Commonweal Podcast. The Commonweal Podcast is produced by assistant editor Griffin Olinick and the Commonweal staff in partnership with Sandberg Media. Wally Boudway composed the music, and David Dalt did the editing. For the Commonweal Podcast, this is Dominic Preziosi.